The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Upgrading the Treatment Algorithm for Advanced Ovarian Cancer. Expert tips, tools, and patient care strategies for making the most of PARP inhibitors across the disease continuum. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash UNZ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, I am Dr. Deborah Richardson, a gynecologic oncologist from the Stevenson Cancer Center in Oklahoma City. Welcome to this educational activity entitled Upgrading the Treatment Algorithm for Advanced Ovarian Cancer, Expert Tips, Tools, and Patient Care Strategies for Making the Most of PARP Inhibitors Across the Disease Continuum. I'm pleased to be joined by my colleague, Dr. Linda Duska, a gynecologic oncologist from the University of Virginia School of Medicine. Thanks, Dr. Richardson. I'm really glad to be here with you today. I'm looking forward to talking about the recent advances in PARP inhibitor therapy for the treatment of ovarian cancer. We'll cover what these advances mean for our patients and share our perspectives for integrating their use in the clinic. Wonderful, Dr. Deska. So happy you could join me today. We'll also hear some patient perspectives and cover genetic and genomic testing, therapeutic selection, and management of adverse events within a shared decision-making approach to patient care. Dr. Deska, can you get us started with an overview of the rationale for PARP inhibitor use and considerations for germline and somatic testing? Absolutely. This slide that you're seeing here illustrates the mechanism whereby PARP inhibitors exploit the baseline vulnerability of cells with inherent DNA repair deficiency. Poly-ADP ribose polymerases, or PARPs, repair DNA single-strand breaks through the base excision repair pathway. PARP inhibitors, shown in this cartoon in orange on the left-hand side, prevent this repair by trapping the inactivated PARP onto the single-strand break, resulting in the generation of DNA double-strand breaks during the replication process. In tumors with homologous recombination deficiency, also called HRD, such as a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, the low-fidelity repair mechanism of non-homologous end joining leads to increasing genetic instability and ultimately death of the tumor cell, shown in the left-hand bottom corner. Alternatively, on the right-hand bottom corner, the normal cell is able to repair double-strand breaks via the homologous recombination repair pathway, and the cell survives. Homologous recombination deficiency is not limited to BRCA1 and 2 germline mutations alone. This slide demonstrates that approximately 50% of epithelial ovarian cancers exhibit defective DNA repair via homologous recombination due to both genetic and epigenetic alterations of HR pathway genes. Let's take a minute to look at this circular pie graph. In green, we're looking at BRCA1 and BRCA2 germline and somatic mutations, as well as BRCA1 promoter methylation. All of these, the blue plus the green, result in HR deficiency. The orange sections, including P10 deletion, have been reported to confer HR deficiency but data are evolving. On the other hand, the remainder, remainder of the circular graph are enriched for HR proficiency, particularly tumors with cyclin E1 amplification. And this is associated with an inferior response to platinum chemotherapy. BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations are the most common alterations among those who are HRD, shown in green, about 16% with a germline BRCA mutation and four to 7% with a somatic BRCA mutation. Therefore, BRCA mutation testing is essential in routine clinical practice. From a practical standpoint, how do we test for HRD? This slide shows us a variety of different ways that we can test for HRD. HRD tests are classified into three types, germline or somatic mutations of genes, genomic instability, and homologous recombination repair function status testing. There are two ways to detect HRD. That's shown at the bottom of the slide. The first is to look at cause, specifically the loss of function of some essential genes. This can be done via BRCA mutation tests and tests of individual genes or panels of non-BRCA genes that affect homologous recombination. The alternative approach to identify HRD is to search for the effect of HRD or the phenotype and determine the consequences of HRD by looking at genomic damage. 
As examples, the Myriad My Choice CDX test uses the gen- genomic instability store- score, also called the GIS score, and the Foundation Medicine Foundation One CDX test looks at loss of heterozygosity. In both of these tests, the an- analysis is performed on genomic DNA isolated from formal and fixed paraffin-embedded tissue specimens. This slide shows some of the clinical trials that Dr. Richardson is going to talk about shortly. The PARP inhibitor used in treatment shown on the left. The marker to determine HRD status shown in the third column from the left. And then the FDA-approved diagnostic test that was used in each clinical trial. So we're going to talk about a case now. This is a 62-year-old patient with a stage 4 high-grade serous ovarian cancer. She presents with abdominal bloating, discomfort, and modest weight loss. Her past medical history is significant for having hypertension and mild anemia. She's postmenopausal with no known family history of cancer. On her physical exam, she does have some diffuse tenderness on abdominal palpation, as well as some bloating. She has a good functional status with an ECOG performance status of 1. Originally, she had both a transvaginal ultrasound and a C125 done. The C125 was elevated. Transvaginal ultrasound showed a pelvic mass. She went on to have a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, which revealed pleural effusion, ascites, carcinomatosis, bilateral pelvic masses, and supracravicular lymphadenopathy. She then underwent a biopsy of the supracravicular node, which confirmed a high-grade serous ovarian cancer. So Dr. Duska, when do you typically test for BRCA mutation status and or HRD? Super good question. Um, first of all, I think we can agree that everyone with EOC should be tested. Um, but then the question is, um, when in the course of their disease do you test them? And I think for, for me, it depends on whether I'm doing neoadjuvant chemotherapy, as I would probably choose to do in this case, or if I'm doing an upfront tumor debulking. Um, in this particular case, if I were going to do neoadjuvant chemotherapy, I would probably uh, definitely do the germline testing now. But I would also, assuming I got a core biopsy um, to confirm the diagnosis, would also order HRD on the core biopsy. If I were taking the patient to the operating room, because of Medicare rules, I would have to wait to do the HRD testing until later. Um, and so I would probably do the germline and the HRD testing at the time of cycle two, when the patient comes in for cycle two. Would you manage it differently? So I prefer germline testing first because I want to catch all of those patients who have germline mutations, both for them and for their family members, so that cascade testing can then be initiated if they are found to have a germline test. Um, how about in your practice? I absolutely agree with that. Germline, most important, germline first. And do you feel that all patients who um, have epithelial ovarian cancer require both germline and somatic testing, or are there any patients that you would not get both in? Well, so that's a really good question, because that, that brings up your issue of next-generation sequencing, right? So right now, we don't do next-generation sequencing in-house, so I have to send it out on everybody. And so currently, we're doing ne- next-generation sequencing at the time of first recurrence. So one could argue... When is the exact right time to, to do that? Not argue, debate, sorry. Um, so I think um, if the germline is positive, I agree with you that the tumor testing for HRD is far less important. Um, and one could argue that it doesn't need to be sent. Um, but for everybody who's germline negative, absolutely needs to get tumor tested. I agree with that. I mean, I will say if I have a germline BRCA mutation patient, I don't necessarily send any somatic testing at that time because I'm hoping maybe I can cure that patient. We'll talk about some of that data, but otherwise I I agree that just about the majority of patients need both germline and somatic testing up front. I think, um, you know, sometimes we can run into some insurance barriers. For example, we have a large Native American population in Oklahoma, and Indian Health actually doesn't cover the test, uh, the cost of germline testing. So that as you know, a barrier. And then I think there are some patient level barriers. Sometimes you know, um, there can be misperceptions about the risks of gen- genetic testing, especially germline testing. Uh, sometimes people don't want to know. Sometimes they're afraid to pass that information on to their family. Um, I think there are some barriers in regards to, for example, long term. Uh, care insurance and health, uh, excuse me, not health insurance, but rather uh, life insurance. So while the GINA Act covers 
no discrimination, you know, for employment or for healthcare. There are some concerns that are valid as far as some other things, depending on the age of the patient or even family members. Um, so I think there can be some systems issues. They're fairly easy, I think, to overcome at this point. Most of the tests have made it fairly easy uh, to try and help patients with financial assistance, et cetera. I think a lot of it's just educating patients and um, figuring out if they're afraid of being tested, why that might it, you know, be, and can we educate them so that they understand the importance of the testing and how it affects both them and their loved ones. Well, how do you talk to your patients about testing? So I, I recommend it to all of my epithelial ovarian cancer patients. Um, I tell them that I would like to do a blood test on them to see if they inherited a reason why they got this cancer, that about probably 20 to 25% of epithelial ovarian cancer is inherited through a germline mutation, and that this can affect um, their response to chemo. It can affect my recommendations in regards to maintenance therapies. And uh, also their family members who are blood related have a 50% chance of inheriting a mutation if they have one and that we can do things to help prevent their loved ones from developing these cancers. I think that's the most important part. It's not just information for the sake of having information, right? I mean, there's actually something we can do about, about this, not just their risks of other cancers in the future, but also treating their ovarian cancer with essentially personalized medicine and I, I always stress that it's not just a test for the sake of doing a test, but it's also a test to really help us take better care of you. And I think a lot of people are surprised that we can actually do, uh, you know, prophylaxis to prevent cancers, whether that is from breast cancer, from ovarian cancer, and even some of the other cancers that can be associated with some of these mutations. And so I think knowledge is empowerment. Most patients are pretty open to that. Yeah. So there is a lot of information on the internet about ovarian cancer and patients benefit from using the most reputable sources. Patient advocacy groups such as the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition provide invaluable support to those with ovarian cancer and their caregivers. NOCC has a number of resources available to aid patients at any stage of their ovarian cancer journey, including information on genetic testing. Often when we talk to our patients about genetic testing, they have a lot of questions about what the process is like. Let's hear from a patient, Alicia, about what her experience was like when she had her testing done. Hi, my name is Alicia Delario. I'm from Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm an ovarian cancer patient and survivor. The nurse that, wor that I worked with was really amazing. She was a nursing consultant. She really explained to me all about what it meant. She went over all the different things that I could test positive for and what it could potentially mean. She spent a lot of time with me, so it really put me at ease of what, what this was all about and what I was going to learn. And once I really understood that, I thought, wow, it's, this is great because I want to know as much as I can know. Because I knew that if I don't know a lot, that it was going to help, it would be preventing me from doing some potential clinical trials. So once I understood it better, not understanding it, I just wasn't sure, what does this mean? What do, what do I have to do? What is this going to uncover? Um, but the, they're so, the nurses that I worked with were, and the consultants were great. And then when the results came in, sat down with me again and went through everything very thoroughly. And also explained that there's so much happening in research that they're always uncovering new um, biomarkers so that it's not something that's once and done. You're going to want to do that again. And then, of course, when I heard about HRD, I went and did it again. And lo and behold, here it was something that told me a little bit more about myself. Alicia talked a lot about the role of the nurse in explaining the process to her. It's important to understand this perspective. And this highlights the impact of the wider care team. Um, I think it's really important to have the whole team be part of the patient care and um, our a genetic counselor. We're very fortunate to have a genetic counselor. I have a nurse practitioner who specializes in genetic counseling, um, a nurse who can provide answers when I might not be available. And having the whole team involved can be really helpful um, in just taking away some of the fear that's attached to this process. Dr. Richardson, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, it takes a team to take care of these patients. There's so many things. And in fact, occasionally I'll forget to tell my nurse to order, uh, you know, the germline test. And she'll ask me when we're running the list at the end of clinic, did you want to order, 
you know, that test. And so <laughs> everybody on the team is, you know, connected to that. And, you know, my nurse practitioner also shares patients with me. And if um, she realizes that the patient has not undergone germline testing, she'll also be prompted to ask the patient if they want to undergo the testing in order as well. So I think a team approach is key uh, because any one of us could could miss it, actually, even though we realize the importance of it. So Alicia also had some thoughts on what she would tell someone else who is beginning this journey if they were scared to get genetic testing. Let's hear what she has to say. I would say I understand because it's an unknown and it's not something that you've ever done before, but it can change everything for the positive. The more you know, the more options that you'll have. And the more that you can research because you know more about what your situation is and what is out there to help you. And there's so much happening in science right now. And we're very, very fortunate for that, that every single day something new is being discovered. And there are new medicines, new treatments, new biomarkers. So the more you know, the more opportunities you have to fight this disease I mean, I was eight years ago, not almost nine years ago when I was diagnosed, we knew very little. We didn't have PARP inhibitors. We didn't have immunotherapy. And then I'm sure there's many other things that are happening. Um, so you will have those opportunities if you do that genetic testing and you know more about what you are and what, what you're made up of. I wanted to know I wanted, and I want to continue to do testing to see as we learn more bio, about new biomarkers. I want to continue to know what's going on um, because that is, that is extraordinarily powerful and it opens up options for us. So it made me realize that I can never lose hope because of everything that is happening in science. There is, there's going to be something. And in fact, my oncologist has said, you know, if the trial, if you were to recur now, there's going to be something else. There's, there's so much happening. So, but you do have to know, what your biomarkers are in order to um, be able to take advantage of all these uh, great things happening in science. Now that we've reviewed how testing can allow for selection of PARP inhibitors as a treatment option and also heard some important patient perspectives, Dr. Richardson, can you take us through the data of their use in first-line maintenance? I'd be happy to. So this is, uh, you know, a summary kind of of the first-line maintenance that have been studied in patients with newly diagnosed advanced ovarian cancer. Uh, you know, we have solo one, which is a lapper versus placebo, which led to the FDA approval of this drug for maintenance uh, in the frontline setting. Prima, which was Narapera versus placebo, again, FDA approved in this setting. We then have Athena Mono, which was Rucapera versus placebo, which has been um, submitted for the FDA for approval, but not quite FDA approved yet. Palo one, which was uh, Olaparib plus Bevacizumab versus placebo with Bevacizumab, again, left, led to an FDA approval. And then Ovario, which was Narapirib plus Bevacizumab. And so this is solo one. Uh, and I remember when this was presented at ESMO, this was one of the best curves I've ever seen in oncology. Uh, I mean, this curve speaks for itself. It's not very often that you um, see curves this good. But to remind everybody, this is when we took Olaparib versus placebo in a two-to-one randomization of stage three or four uh, ovarian cancer patients, and they did have to have a BRCA mutation that could be germline or somatic. The majority of patients enrolled in this trial, it was a germline mutation. And uh, I mean, the median progression-free survival is 42 months better in the patients who were randomized to Olaparib, 56 months versus 13.8 months, has a ratio of 0.33. Um, and in addition, what I think is striking about this is that Olaparib was only given for two years. There were some exceptions if a patient had not been in a complete response or NED when they entered and had been a partial response and was felt to be benefiting, they could ask to continue the patient past two years. So there were some patients that did continue treatment past two years, but the huge majority actually stopped at two years. And as you can see, this benefit continues. I mean, I'll draw your attention to the five-year mark. You still have 48% of patients in the Olaparib arm who are progression-free compared to 21% in the placebo arm. And this was the overall survival at the seven-year follow-up that was shown at ESMO this year. Um, again, at five years, 73% were alive in the Olaparib arm compared to 63% in the placebo arm. This becomes a little bit more dramatic as we hit the seven-year mark. 67% uh, of patients who received Olaparib are still alive 
at seven years compared to placebo 46.5. And this has a ratio as 0.55. This is still not mature. This gives me a lot of hope that uh, using uh, part maintenance, Olaparib, uh, for patients with BRCA mutations actually is going to improve overall survival, which we have not done in a very long time in ovary cancer. And then we have Prima. Again, this was stage three or four um, patients, and they were randomized to either Norapirib or placebo for um, all comers. So this was not restricted to BRCA. And uh, the overall, the um, primary endpoint was progression-free survival. And so first they looked at this in the HRD population. And as you can see, there was a 57% reduction in the hazard of relapse or death with norepirib. The median progression-free survival in the norepirib arm was 21.9 months compared to 10.4 months in the placebo arm. And then they also looked at it in the overall population. And again, there is still a improvement with a 38% reduction in the hazard of relapse or death, 13.8 median uh, progression-free survival in the norepirib arm compared to 8.2 months in the placebo arm. And then this is the Prima, the update at long-term progression-free survival. Uh, you can see this is after median follow-up of three and a half years. There was a stain benefit in frontline regardless of biomarker status, but there was a higher benefit in the patients who had HRD tumors. Uh, at four years, the progression-free survival rate in the HRD population was 38% compared to 17% in the placebo. The median progression-free survival of the HRD group was 24.5 months compared to 11.2 months. And in the all-comers, the pro median progression-free survival was 13.8 months compared to 8.2 months with a hazard ratio of 0.66. And this is Athena Mono, which is Rucaparib. These patients were randomized four to one to either Rucaparib or placebo. The top curve is the HRD group, uh, and their median progression-free survival was 28.7 months compared to 11.3 months, again, showing benefit. And then in the overall intention to treat population, the median progression-free survival was 20.2 months versus 9.2 months with a hazard ratio of 0.52. And while this is not yet FDA approved, it is NCCN compendia listed for uh, patients with uh, a response to platinum-based chemotherapy after frontline uh, chemo. So this is PALO1. Uh, this is um, where we are bringing in combinations, Olaparib plus Bevacizumab compared to Bevacizumab alone. And so I'd like to point out that this is the first time that we had an active control where the patient was compared to Bevacizumab rather than placebo. And I w also would like to point out that the Olaparib was continued for 24 months, uh, just like it was in Solo1. The Bevacizumab was given for 15 months um, so that stopped uh, nine months prior to the LAPR being completed. And if you look on the left, these are in our patients who are HRD positive, including tumor uh, BRCA mutated patients. And as you can see, the median progression-free survival in the combination arm was 37.2 months compared to 17.7 months in the bevacizumab alone arm with a hazard ratio of 0.33. Again, very similar to what we saw in Solo 1. Next, if we go to the middle, we see HRD positive, but removing the patients who were BRCA uh, mutated. And our median progression-free survival in the combination arm is 28 months compared to 16.6 .6 months in the bevacizumab alone, with the hazard ratio still very impressive, 0.43. And on the right, you can see that these curves kind of overlap, um, and there was not improvement in adding um, the olaparib plus bevacizumab compared to bevacizumab alone, with the median progression-free survival in the combo arm of 16.9 months compared to the placebo plus bev arm of 16 months with a hazard ratio of 0.92. And that did uh, leave the FDA to approve um, olaparib plus bevacizumab in the HRD test-positive patients. This brings us then to the final overall survival for this trial. So on the left, we have our BRCA mutated patients, the five-year overall survival rate, 73.2 months, compared to patients who received bevacizumab alone, 53.8 months, has a ratio 0.6. So uh, there is an overall survival benefit in these patients. In the middle, we have our HRD positive patients, but we have removed the BRCA mutated patients. The five-year overall survival still above 50% at 54.7% compared to placebo, 44.2% uh, and the hazard ratio 0.71. This confidence interval does cross one. 
And on the right, again, these uh, curves basically overlap. These are the patients who were not test positive for homologous recombination deficiency, and the hazard ratio was 1.19. In fact, you can see the placebo arm had a median progression excuse me, median five-year overall survival rate of 32% compared to 25% in the uh, Olapra plus BEV arm. So this is a, I think, helpful algorithm for kind of deciding on first-line maintenance, and Dr. Katie Moore was kind enough to uh, let us borrow this slide. So first, um, we do recommend testing all patients with high-grade ovarian cancer at or around diagnosis with uh, either germline and or somatic testing. And then your first kind of decision point is, do you take the patient to surgery as you know, Dr. Duska and I had discussed earlier, or do you start off with neoadjuvant chemotherapy? Your next decision is, uh, do you give bevacizumab with that platinum-based chemotherapy? So we know the standard of care is carboplatinum plus paclitaxel every three weeks, and we can add bevacizumab uh, to those patients as well. Uh, it does get held around the time of surgery if somebody is going to have an interval to bulking. Then the third question becomes, do you add a PARP inhibitor for maintenance? So if you've already given bevacizumab during the chemotherapy, you'll be continuing that during maintenance. If the patient is homologous recombination deficient uh, or um, is BRCA mutated, you would add the PARP inhibitor, and that's based on the PALO1 data that we just reviewed, which would be Olaparib plus bevacizumab. If they are uh, homologous test uh, recombination deficiency test negative, then you would continue the bevacizumab. And we have several randomized phase three trials that uh, support that use, including GOG-218, GOG-262, and ICON-7. If you had not given bevacizumab and they are uh, HRD, including BRCA mutated, then you would add a PARP inhibitor. And uh, we've shown you all the data for that. Um, the options include olaparib, niraparib, and uh, rucaparib. If they are uh, homologous recombination deficient test negative, you can consider a PARP inhibitor based on the clinical trials Prima and Athena Mono with either Niraparib or Rucaparib, or if there's a clinical trial available, you can also put, uh, offer the patient that. And just to review, what are the FDA approvals for PARP inhibitors in ovarian cancer? Because the landscape has recently changed, and in fact, the FDA has made some changes to the label recently. So for first-line maintenance, these are for following response to platinum-based chemotherapy for newly diagnosed, advanced-stage, high-grade ovarian cancer patients. Niraparib, irregardless of their BRCA or HRD status. Olaparib is uh, for germline or somatic deleterious BRCA alterations. And then there's Olaparib plus bevacizumab combination for genetic for germline or somatic deleterious BRCA alteration and or HRD positive tumors. The indications that change in 2022. So for second or greater line maintenance following response to platinum-based chemotherapy for patients with platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer, niraparib can be given now to germline or some suspected germline BRCA deleterious alteration. Olaparib, again, irregardless of their status, it is for all comers who have had a response to platinum-based chemotherapy, whether uh, they're BRCA mutated or wild type, or if they're HRD test positive or not. Rucaparib is for germline or somatic deleterious BRCA alterations. The FDA did withdraw approval of PARP inhibitors as single agent treatment for recurrent ovarian cancer. I think this is a lot less important at this point because many patients are receiving um, PARP inhibitor maintenance up front if they've had a germline or uh, somatic mutation for BRCA. And um, also to be aware of the continuation of PARP inhibitors in patients who are deriving clinical benefit from a PARP inhibitor in a setting that is no longer FDA approved should be done after a thorough discussion with the patient. Um, but I think that there's plenty of evidence to say if you feel the patient is deriving clinical benefit that it's reasonable to continue as long as the patient is aware of the potential risks and benefit. Dr. Richardson, I have a question for you. How would you how do you choose which PARP inhibitor to use for the first line maintenance? So uh, if we're following the labels, then depends on kind of what their test results are. That being said, I think a lot of times we can choose which PARP we want to. And so I take into account, um, you know, how how was their uh blood test? Do they have any myelosuppression during their upfront chemotherapy? Do they have concerns about nausea? There's once a day dosing, for example, niraparib compared to olaparib or rucaparib, which is 
twice a day dosing. Sometimes there's some costs. So uh, patient's insurance sometimes has a preferred PARP inhibitor, which makes it much more affordable for the patient to take one over the other. So I kind of take into some uh, patient characteristics and also costs for the patient. How about you? Yeah, same. I Yes. Also, I find that my team gets really comfortable managing the toxicity of one particular uh, PARP inhibitor. And so we tend to use the ones that we're most comfortable with. So that sometimes happens too. But I like all of your ideas. I think that's very fair. So now we're going to expand on the benefits of combination approaches. So this is Ovario, which was a small phase two trial of Neraparib plus Bevacizumab, somewhat similar to Palo, but there's no um, control arm in this trial, a single arm. And it took patients who had stage three or four uh, ovarian cancer who are either in a complete response, partial response, or NED after their frontline chemotherapy plus Bevacizumab. They had to have a minimum of three cycles of Bevacizumab with their chemotherapy to enroll in this trial. They all underwent tissue testing for HRD status and enrollment. And in this trial, they did use um, individualized dosing for the neraparib. Uh, what we're going to talk about in a second, weights and plates. But uh, if you're if the patient weighed less than 77 kilograms and or had a platelet count of less than 150,000, they were started at 200 milligrams. All their patients started at the 300 milligram dose. And patients received bevacizumab uh, for a maximum of 15 months, including their first line treatment. And as you can see, in the overall population, more than half, 53% of the patients were still progression-free at 24 months. 63% remained progression-free in the HRD subgroup and 42% in the uh, HR proficient uh, subgroup. And then there was also the not determined, uh, which was 50%. So somewhat similar to what we saw from the paleo, they're not exactly the same um, uh, patient population. So I would be careful about any cross-trial uh, comparisons. And this just shows uh, that we did see <clears throat> clinical benefit of neuroparib plus bevacizumab in the overall population and also then across the biomarker subgroups in a continuum. So that the median progression-free survival was 19.6 months. On the right, you'll see uh, we have the median progression-free survival in the HRD group was 28.3 months. The median progression-free survival dropped off quite a bit in the um, HR not determined group, uh, 12.1 months. And in the patients who are not HRD test positive, the median progression-free survival was 14.2 months. And now PARP inhibitors have been investigated in other combination approaches. So now we're trying to bring immunotherapy, which hasn't done so well in some of the other trials we've looked at in ovarian cancer, to upfront uh, treatment in ovarian cancer. And there are three kind of first-line maintenance phase three trials to be aware of. So all of these advances were possible through clinical trials, and there are a number of additional clinical trials underway in ovarian cancer. So Dr. Duska, how do you talk to your patients about clinical trial enrollment opportunities? Um, I think clinical trials give our patients the opportunity to take advantage of novel therapies that may benefit them. And I'm a firm believer in the importance of clinical research. We would not have PARP inhibitors without clinical trials. And so my philosophy is that every patient should be offered a trial if I have one for her. That doesn't mean she needs to do it. Um, and certainly patients choose to not do trials all the time, but I, I just think it's critical that all patients be offered a study um, if it's if I have an appropriate trial for that for that patient so they have the opportunity to take advantage of these novel therapies that we have to offer. Um, you know, I, it's good for patients in the future, yes, and there is some um, additional, you know, blood work and tests that patients have to undergo as we learn more about these drugs, but they also give patients the opportunity to take advantage of novel therapies that may help them as individuals. So um, that's my philosophy, and patients know if I offer a study and they turn me down, that in the future, if hopefully their cancer doesn't come back, but if it does, I will be offering them another uh, trial, um, because ultimately, I do believe that clinical research and clinical care are interchangeable. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I agree. So we basically screen all of our patients, you know, whether it's a new diagnosis or recurrence for clinical trials, the NCCN would totally agree with what you're saying. The best way to treat a patient with cancer is on a clinical trial. 
I let them know, you know, the reason why we're doing so much better in pediatric cancers is about 60% of kids with cancer go on clinical trial compared to about under 10% of adult um, patients with cancer. And that's why we've made such tremendous strides in pediatric cancers compared to adult tumors. And, you know, you, I think it's best just to offer to everybody and not assume who may or may not take, uh, you know, agree to a trial. Um, everybody deserves a chance if they're eligible. And also, we also know that there, there may be some, some things that work we're not sure of, like whether it's a placebo effect or how we follow patients on trial. But even when they get the standard of care and they're not getting additional, you know, uh, trial medications, they seem to do better when they're put on trial than when we treat them not on a trial. So I think there's so many benefits to trial. I can't really um, stress them enough. Something you said is really near and dear to my heart, and that is that every patient should be offered a study and that we shouldn't be judging, you know, she's going to say no, or she can't do this. And so I'm not going to offer it to her. That's called provider bias. And I think that happens way more than we're willing to admit. And my entire team knows, you know, obviously if a patient um, has some sort of psychiatric disability and is unable to consent for whatever reason, or is too sick, um, or who doesn't meet the inclusion tr- uh, criteria of the trial, but I feel strongly that we, sh- like you do, that we should offer every patient a clinical trial because our biases should not be part, as providers, should not be part of this conversation. I totally agree. It's also really important to understand the patient perspective. Let's hear from Alicia about her experience joining a clinical trial and being on a PARP inhibitor therapy. Because we knew I was HRD positive, my oncologist happened to be a trial lead for a PARP inhibitor that had just had recently started a trial group for BRCA negative HRD positive. So I was jumping up and down with joy that I was finally going to qualify for a clinical trial. Um, And it was something that was targeted for ovarian cancer. I had never been on a treatment for ovarian cancer. Everything was standard of care chemo. So it was the first time I felt that I had the best chance possible of fighting this because it was for me, for my type, you know, and for ovarian cancer. I was working for a pharmaceutical company, so I was very familiar with clinical trials um, and um, what was happening in the ovarian cancer space because I started talking to a lot of the scientists about it. So, um, so being in that arena and being around um, in pharmaceuticals, I just had a really a better understanding and how the importance of clinical trials. So I wasn't nervous about that, although I understand when people are nervous completely. Um, But it was a very easy process. I mean, I was so lucky that my oncologist was the study lead. So and is the study lead. So I could still go to him. So I could stay within my practice that was a real plus. I didn't have to go somewhere different. I know that patients have to do that. And that I would be surrounded by eyes on this. So that is one of the beauties of clinical trials is that everybody is watching this to make sure that you are okay. Um, There's a tremendous amount of monitoring and checking in and blood tests and, and just talking to you. I would have to go in the beginning every four weeks and talk to my oncologist and the study lead um, about what was happening. And I did struggle for the first four to five months of the trial. I was pretty sick. Um, and then eventually they knew what they did know from the BRCA positive trials that was that it would eventually um, just you would, your body would adjust. And after four or five months, you would you would really feel pretty decent other than fatigue. And I thought, well, fatigue, I can live with. The other stuff was really pretty rough. So um, so they were just all hands on deck for me. And I never not that I didn't have a lot of care before, but this was really surrounding me with eyes on this. And of course, for this particular trial, the medications are, are free. And I even I do travel fairly far to go to my oncologist um, because I just adore him. Um, they I had a I have a gas card that pays for gas to and from because you have to go so often to check in for the trial. So for me, I felt that I did not have some of the hardships that people do have that don't live in more of a metropolitan area where they have access to hospitals that are closer to them. Um, I was very fortunate that everything was in a reasonable distance for me to get to. And 
I had always had infusions and with infusions you would go in and you would feel lousy for maybe a couple of days and then you would know when your good days were and you could sort of schedule your life around that. With the pills, you really never come out from under. And I got to be very angry about it. Oh, I have to take the next one. And I was just, because I was really sick in the beginning. Um, but my oncologist was so focused on quality of life that he was like, no, we got, we have to keep making adjustments until we figure out the right thing because you're not going to want to stay on this because you can't come out from under. So that was nice. So they really worked with me to, um, manage the uh, illness with and without being able to come out from under because you're taking the pill every day um, and to give you the breaks. So they build in these breaks and the breaks are built in so far all four years. So when we go on vacation, I come off of it so that I'm just not tired because I just have fatigue now. Um, but I, 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 at the beginning, I was a little bit um, ambivalent toward having to take pills, although it is a lot easier. You don't have to go in for an infusion um, it was just very different from having an infusion. And, and now that I'm used to it, it's, I'm glad it's a pill. After hearing about Alicia's experiences, let's go over some of the important safety and practical aspects of PARP inhibitors. So common adverse events that we are very familiar with for PARP inhibitors in ovarian cancer include hematologic, uh, anemia, thrombocytopenia, neutropenia. There's also non-hematologic, including GI, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, fatigue is a big one, asthenia. Uh, and then also um, rare but important to remember are the myelodysplastic syndromes, AML, and pneumonitis. What I do find interesting is that for most side effects with PARP inhibitors, after a few months, these actually improve over time. You know what else is also really important to remember? We see MDS and even AML with just Taxol and Carboplatin alone. There's definitely a base, a baseline um, occurrence of this. And I've actually been seeing a lot of MDS lately on very heavily pretreated um, ovarian cancer patients who've never even seen a PARP. So while these are um, rarely associated with PARP inhibitors, they're also associated with alkylating agents in general. And so we just need to remember that there's that baseline incidence anyway. Thanks for that reminder, Dr. Jessica. So with respect to the hematologic um, AEs, it's really important to monitor uh, weekly, at least for the first month. So my practice has always been to monitor blood counts weekly for the first month. Um, I usually monitor monthly for at least six months, um, and then after month 12 periodically. As Dr. Richardson already said, once people get acclimated is the best word I can think of to these drugs. Many of the side effects resolve, particularly the fatigue and the nausea, maybe after the first month or two. Um, but also the hematologic effects seem to um, essentially um, essentially go away after the first few months. Although if patients struggle in the first few months and require a lot of dose reductions, <clears throat> that seems to go on for some time requiring more frequent um, evaluation. Um, the uh, PARP inhibitor should be in, uh, interrupted um, if there's a significant drop in hemoglobin, and sometimes the doses need to be adjusted. Um, also, we need to keep um, track of, as we, uh, of course, always would, uh, blood pressure and heart rate, closely monitor patients with cardiovascular disorders, and medically manage hypertension as needed. For the non-hematologic side effects, again, usually after the first month or two, they uh, resolve Sometimes taking a prophylactic antiemetic 30 minutes before dosing can be helpful. Lifestyle modifications. Um, as Dr. Richardson already alluded to, uh, maybe thinking about for patients who have a lot of pre-anticipatory nausea with taking pills in general, using one of the once-daily dosing um, drugs would be helpful. Um, if patients have insomnia, taking the dose in the morning may be helpful. And, cons and having a low threshold for dose interruption or dose reduction for severe fatigue is really important. We want to uh, also, of course, focus on quality of life. Yes, we want to lengthen life. Of course, that's very important. But we also want to maintain quality. And if these drugs are significantly impacting quality of life, um, we need to manage that appropriately with dose interruptions and dose reductions. 
I totally agree. And I'll, I just wanted to add real quick, one of my little tips and tricks is I like to have patients use American ginseng. And uh, we actually have a farm DMI uh, office that'll do teaching for this and give it to the patient as long as they don't have a contraindication. So if they're on um, anticoagulation, they're not, not, it's not an option, but it actually can ha- help with the fatigue. There was an article published in the JNCI quite a while ago about American ginseng helping cancer patients with fatigue. That is such a great idea. Thank you. So uh, I kind of alluded to this a little bit before, but there is now individualized starting dose of norepirib, which we've been using for a while, but this is where the data comes from. Basically, uh, patients who um, had a fixed starting dose at 300 milligrams of norepirib or placebo um, had quite a bit of grade three or greater hematologic events. In fact, it was almost 50% thrombocytopenia, anemia was 35%, neutropenia 24%, hypertension 6.7%. When we moved to an individualized starting dose of 200 milligrams once a day, again, for patients weighing less than 77 kilograms or platelets less than 150,000, we saw much uh, lower risks of these grade three or greater um, hematologic events, including uh, drop from thrombocytopenia down to 21%, anemia 22%, and neutropenia 14%. And so uh, this did not change um, the benefit of norepirib and its progression-free survival. As you can see, uh, the hazard ratio was 0.59 in the fixed dose, 0.69 when individualized starting dose was used. And therefore, um, individualized starting dose is, uh, is recommended for starting your patients on norepirib in order to reduce toxicity. So we're going to pick back up on our case. Uh, so just remind you again, 62-year-old with stage 4 ovarian cancer who we decided to give neoadjuvant chemotherapy uh, because of the stage 4. Her testing showed um, that she was BRCA negative. However, she was uh, homologous recombination deficient positive. She ended up completing six cycles of carboplatin and paclitaxel. And then uh, norepirib was started at 200 milligrams because of the weight plate uh, dosing. Her platelets were noted to drop from 130 to 50 two weeks after starting norepirib. Therefore, the PARP inhibitor was interrupted. Uh, and then her counts were monitored weekly, as Dr. Duska pointed out. And once they uh, were back to at least 100, um, which took about three weeks in this patient, we were able to resume her norepirib dosing at 100 milligrams, and she was doing well. I would also point out that once we do resume this norepirib at 100 milligrams and we had held it for counts, it is important then to resume that uh, weekly monitoring after you resume so that that starts over. So you would want to monitor weekly for the first four weeks after resuming your PARP inhibitor after having to hold it for myelosuppression. So I echo what Dr. Richardson said. It's really important to monitor weekly when restarting the norepirib. And, uh, you know, Dr. Deska had pointed out um, on that previous slide about monitoring uh, monthly up to about six months. I will say in our practice, we do do it weekly for the first four weeks. If they've been fine, then we go to monthly out to month three. And at three months, we actually go to three months. However, I can't echo what Dr. Deska said enough that if you're having toxicity and you've had to halt, interrupt, um, reduce, then you really need to monitor that patient carefully. So I think summary of practical points, who should get PARP inhibitors? Well, you can consider PARP inhibitors for all patients with newly diagnosed advanced high-grade epithelial ovarian cancer. I think you absolutely have to encourage any patient with a BRCA mutation to go on a PARP inhibitor maintenance. This, While we don't know yet, I think it likely improves overall survival, and it, the benefit of that cannot be overstated. I think it's also very important to offer it to all of your HRD patients. Those are big hazard ratio um, improvements in progression-free survival. In the patients who are homologous recombination deficient test negative, then it's a balanced discussion of risk and benefit. One thing we didn't really have much time to get into is that, you know, these tests are not po- uh, are not perfect. And so some of these the tests that we have currently can miss a patient who has homologous recombination deficiency. For recurrent ovarian cancer, if they are PARP inhibitor naive and they are platinum sensitive, then again, you should be offering PARP maintenance irrespective of BRCA or HRD status as long as they've had a response to their platinum-based chemo. So what about when and what type of genetic testing should occur? I think we all agree that every patient with ovarian cancer should have germline testing at least at diagnosis. Um, It's essential, and most of us do broad panels, not just BRCA1 and 2. Um, and you saw from the slides I showed you earlier that there are a lot of genes that are really important to test for. 
Um, for those patients that are germline negative, tumor testing is really important, as Dr. Richardson already said, because we do have opportunities to offer those patients for uh, maintenance. With respect to toxicities, um, I think educating the team is critical. The entire team needs to know what the toxicities of these drugs are and how often we need to check, um, particularly patients' uh, CBCs for hemoglobin and platelets. Educating the patients about why this is important and how to monitor um, and manage the side effects is also critical. And um, many of us have online portals that patients can message us through to speak to us about their um, side effects and we can help um, them manage those. Um, dose modifications, if you have questions, the drug labels are really helpful um, to tell you how to uh, modify either interrupt or reduce doses uh, based on hemoglobin or uh, platelet platelets or even creatinine. There are some dose modifications that are required for renal failure and it's really important to know what those are. Um, and again, the dose, uh, the uh, drug labels can be very helpful in that regard. And then supportive measures, uh, really important. We want to focus on quality of life. We want people to live long, but also live well. Um, and if we're making them so tired they can't get out of bed with these drugs, then we're not doing them a favor. We need to, we need to fix that problem. Another reminder that you can direct your patients to organizations such as NOCC to access resources designed to help them engage in their own care and empower them to participate in shared decision-making, as well as find supportive communities and other educational programs. Dr. Richardson, it was so fun to talk to you today about this. This is one of our true success stories in ovarian cancer, as you said when we first started this. And I think it all gives us joy that we can offer this opportunity to our patients and that I think you're right, we're going to be seeing a change in the overall survival of ovarian cancer for this subgroup of patients. It's so important and so encouraging to those of us that do clinical research that this is possible. What we've seen during this presentation and what I hope we've convinced you of is the significant evidence supporting the use of PARP inhibitors for treating patients with ovarian cancer We've also hopefully shown you effective approaches for integrating them into clinical care, and we've heard from the patient's perspective. Together, all of these components are really critical for optimal outcomes. Our patients have choices, and it's our job to educate them about these choices. I'd like to remind you to download the practice aids associated with this educational activity as a resource for you, your staff, and your patients. Thank you so much for joining us today. We enjoyed it. I hope that you did too. I hope you found this activity informative and useful for your practice. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash UNZ 860. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from GSK.